Good morning, church. It's good to see you've been enjoying good weather. Good. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Now, can I let you on a little secret? First service is usually more responsive than second service. I don't know why, but I need you to interact with me today, all right? Because here's what, wow, all right. That's a first service person that came late today. Not, not really. I'm getting, I'm getting booed off the stage. It's a bad idea. Here's why I say that. Uh, we are going to tackle a tough subject today. I told you last week that we're going to take a break from our first and second Kings series because I want to spend some time reflecting on this question with you. Here's the question we're going to reflect on today. It's how do we uh, react to and condemn actions of violence like we've seen in our country over the last couple of weeks, you know, shootings. Uh, how is it that we can say that is evil, that is wicked and condemn it? And then rightly, I hope you recognize that the first step that we should always take as believers when we see those kinds of actions is, is grief and lament. Always the right first action before we try and teach or before we try to um, give answers. We, we want to weep with those who weep. Romans 12 tells us to do that. Would we agree that's the right first activity of the church? Weep with those who weep. Don't try to offer answers but coming back this week, then I said what I wanted to do is to try and help you as believers because we've also then been studying in First and Second Kings and we've seen these places where God himself commands certain acts of violence. And someone might ask the question, how is it that you can look at God commanding those kinds of violent things in the Old Testament and how am I supposed to make sense of you then saying or what right do you have to say that you would condemn an act of violence now some might argue there's some hypocrisy in that. Do you see the tension there, church? So I wanna try and give you some tools there um, because we believe in the priesthood of all believers. That means you should never say, well, pastor has the answers, right? You need to have the answers to represent God into the world. And so I want to try and offer some thoughts about how we chew on that. If you wanna frame that question differently, right? So I'm framing it for you saying, how is it that we can condemn those acts of violence in light of the violence that we see in scripture, particularly in the Old Testament? How do we wrestle with that? You might frame it this way too. How does the violence of God in the Old Testament fit with the revelation of God in Jesus in the New Testament? How is it that we wrestle through that tension? Now I'm gonna tell you now, there's no easy answers to that, but I want to give you some helpful content. Now there's always an element in preaching when we come together. There's always an element of teaching in preaching, all right? Now there's, all, you know, sort of a, like we're trying to help you get content. We're gonna be real strong on the teaching side today, all right? So I need you to track with me. I need you to let me know if you're tracking by giving me some feedback as we go, all right? Because we're gonna cover a lot of ground. I'm gonna try and get off the ground pretty quick. If you did not grab the sermon notes on your way in, feel free to get up. I will not be bothered by it. Get up, grab them, pull out your phone, whatever device you take notes on, because today would be a day to take some notes and to be thinking about some pretty weighty content. All right, so have we framed our question helpfully? Yes? How do we, feel, how do we deal with the tension in between these two things, the violence we see in the Old Testament, the Jesus we see in the New Testament, or how is it that we find ourselves going in the name of Jesus, we would condemn that act of violence that we've just seen or acts of violence as we've seen them in light of what we've seen in First and Second Kings. And I feel that tension for you because we've been studying and we haven't hit it head on. So that's what I wanna do today. I just wanna hit that head on with you. And we sung the right song to come into it, which is How Great Thou Art. 
to remind ourselves that all of this is not an effort in just trying to make some apologetic arguments. It's an effort in wanting to know God as he's revealed himself to us. That's our, that's our agenda, to know him for all that he is. Now, recognize church family, that for those of you who are in the faith, these kinds of questions create tension because we're not always sure what to do with them, how to handle them, how to make sense of some of this uh, different you know, activity that we see of God. Recognize too that for those of you who are not followers of Jesus, and I know the majority here are probably those who profess faith in Christ, but there's always some I know who do not. And I wonder if you might feel like a little bit like Richard Dawkins, who sort of famously dismisses the existence of God. But Richard Dawkins says this, because I recognize this, this is like one of those questions, it's a roadblock to faith for a lot of folks, right? So listen to Richard Dawkins when he says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. For him, the scriptures are fiction. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malvolent bully. Now, as I read that, friends, here's what I want to recognize. Here's our job as believers. He's scoffing at our God and at us. Our job is not to scoff back. It's to respond with gentleness and humility, okay? Job is not to scoff back. He is wrong and he is defaming our God. That does make me angry. But my job is not to scoff in return. My job is to meet my enemy with love. It's my job. And we're gonna talk about then how is it that when we encounter our neighbors who feel like Mr. Dawkins does, how do we respond to that? How do we answer that? How do we speak to that? Because we recognize for some, maybe not in as quite a scoffing of a way, it's a real roadblock to faith, this question. Would you agree with that? We wanna help with that. So I wanna offer you four needs that we have as we try to answer that question. That question of what do we do with this tension that we feel? Now, let me say before I get going, I'm not gonna go so broad as to answer some of, the, some of the questions around Christians and war, like just war versus pacifism. We're not gonna go there, that's a subject unto itself, okay? So I'm not gonna get into uh, the Christian's role within government and bearing the sword, and I'm not gonna get into capital punishment and whether that's an appropriate expression of the government. I do believe Christians can rightly disagree about those things and still be brothers and sisters in the faith. And I'm not gonna tackle what I think are the best arguments for each of those. I'm gonna try and stay pretty narrow on this question of the violence in the Old Testament and then what do we do with it in light of who we see God reveal himself to be in Jesus and the mercy and love of God that we see there. So here's our first need. We're gonna do four of them. Here's the first one. We need to distinguish between the types of violence we see in scripture. Now, let me just walk you through this. There's four types of violence that we see in the scriptures. And the reason we need to discern between them is because we offer different responses to each of them. And I'll walk you through probably from least problematic to most problematic for people. So the first type of violence we see in scripture is a type of violence that is uh, described but not affirmed. Described but not affirmed. One of the realities of living in a world where sin has taken root and taken hold and where uh, civil authority does not rightly confront or check the effects of sin in the world is that violence is going to happen. And often you see that described in the Bible, but when it's described, it's not God affirming that. 
He's describing a circumstance that happens. That's a lot of the violence we see in scripture. He describes a circumstance taking place. He does not say, I warranted this or I put my stamp of approval on this. As an example of that, Judges chapter 11. Judges chapter 11, which is the story of Jephthah. Now, let me just remind you of the story of Jephthah. We're gonna hit a lot of scripture today. Some of it I'll summarize for you. A lot of it I'm gonna read for you. This one I'm just gonna summarize. In Judges chapter 11, Jephthah, who is one of the judges, if you know the book of Judges, it goes through these people that God raises up to deliver his people from foreign oppressors. And Jephthah is one of those judges in that line. And he is raised up and he defeats a group of people named the Ammonites. And in defeating them, he makes a really wrong-headed vow where he says to God, if you'll give me victory, when I come back, whatever comes out of my door first, I will sacrifice to you. I will offer it to you. And what comes out of his house first or who comes out of his house first is his only daughter. And he proceeds to sacrifice her to the Lord, believing that the Lord would want that. Now, I know a lot of folks get confused by that when they read it. Can I just tell you, God hated the action of Jephthah in that moment. Do you know how we know that? Because the story of the book of Judges is the story of a group of people who have dismissed, have no king, and they do what is right in their own eyes. And each judge gets progressively worse. The story of Judges is the story of God's people, even those raised up to lead, who in the mercy of God, he uses to deliver his people who don't know God's word, don't know that he said, do not make human sacrifices, who said, I don't want you to make that vow to me, and who then proceed to do foolish things and godless things in light of their lack of knowledge of who God is and doing what is right in their own eyes. So as we read through that, that's an example of a type of violence we see in the scripture that is described but not affirmed by God. And there's quite often those types of examples. All right, does that make sense? Yes? Awesome. That's awesome. Good job. Way to feedback. Better than I've ever seen. All right. So then the second type of violence we see in scripture, the scripture is violence that, violent acts that God does himself. And again, these can be challenging I'm going to, I want to answer why uh, God has the right to do that, all right, in just a moment. But usually there is, people have less problem with this when they still might find it problematic. Like, like, you know, Dr. Dawkins would certainly find it problematic. It's part of what he's critiquing in that long list of things he accuses God of being. But like Genesis chapter six, when Genesis, in Genesis chapter six, verse 13, God says to Noah, I'm going to destroy the earth. I look down on the earth, I see such wickedness, I see such evil, I have determined that other than your family, I'm going to destroy all the earth. Now that's not done by human hands. It's also not something that's just described, it's something that God himself says, I am doing. But quite often, the average person will recognize, hey, if, you know, if there is such a being as God, he would certainly hold the right over life and death. That would seem to be part and parcel to the idea of being God. And therefore, if, if he's going to directly do something as an act of judgment, even though I might not understand it, it certainly seems to fall within the realm or within the role of the idea of being God. So there are certain activities, like in Genesis chapter six, that's another type of violence where God himself is the one doing that activity. Yes? Here's the, and again, we're working from least problematic to typically most problematic 
the one that gives us the most trouble quite often is when God commands acts of violence to be done by people. Those are the ones that are the toughest. Now, there are two types of that. So this is type three and type four of our types of violence. When he does it within his own family, within his own people, and when he commands his people to do it to those who are not his people. And the last one is usually the most challenging for folks. So let me give you examples. I'm just gonna try and give you one of each, all right? We've been studying First and Second Kings. Do you remember in First Kings 21, where God says to Ahab and to Jezebel, who are the epitome of wickedness ruling over his people, and they have done themselves, tremendous acts of violence that are sinful against his people. They uh, killed a man named Naboth because they wanted his vineyard. Do you remember that story? And so God sends Elijah and he says, I'm going to destroy your whole family because of what you've done. It's punishment for your sin. It's an act of judgment upon you for all your evil, for all your wickedness, for leading the people into idol worship. I'm gonna destroy your whole family line. No one will remain. That's within the people of God, there is that sort of activity. But he raises up a man named Jehu, and we see that there was a long time given, and we presume so that there could be repentance. Remember that Ahab showed just like the smallest little hint of repentance, and God said, I'll delay my judgment because of your repentance. He meets it with mercy, but the family continues into wickedness, and eventually in 2 Kings 9, 10, uh, and following, Jehu is raised up and carries out, we just studied it a few weeks ago, he does kill all of Ahab's family. So there's that act of judgment. Now, that is challenging often, but as we look at it, I think most people go, okay, so there are these wicked people and God within his own people passed judgment on them. He caused their life to end because of their evil deeds. It was a punishment for the crime. The last one, which is usually the hardest, uh, and it's where we're gonna be in Deuteronomy chapter 20. So if you have a Bible, I don't know if I said that already or not, you can open up to Deuteronomy chapter 20. And here's where we see what we call the Canaanite conquest. Now, this same orders are given by God in Deuteronomy chapter 20 and in Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses one through about five. And here's where we see God saying to his people, Israel, I want you to go into the land that I'm giving to you and I want you to destroy every living thing, everything that breathes. So we're gonna speak to each one of those types of violence and why or how we would interact with them. <clears throat> but that, I would say the last one, would you agree the last one represents kind of the hardest one to wrestle with? What, what do we do with that? I mean, gosh, didn't we, don't we hear Jesus say, love your enemy? I mean, don't we even hear God in the, in the 10 commandments in Exodus chapter 20 say, do not murder. And yet here we find him giving this command to actually go in and to destroy everything that breathes, all right? So I'm gonna read to you from those here in just a moment. But that's our first need. It's to distinguish between the types because you can see that we would give different responses biblically to each type of violence. That makes sense, yes. All right, great. So then the second thing, the second need that we have, all right? So that was point one. Now here's point two. The second need that we have is we need to affirm God's right to judge, now, before we ever get to any other need, before we ever get to any response about the tension that we feel, the first thing I wanna make sure that I say to you is having seen those types of violence, in particular, when God himself is the one doing the activity, like the Noah, Genesis 6 type, do not begin follower of Jesus in any other place than this. God is the one with the right to judge. Always, always, always. 
you get into a heap of trouble when you start putting yourself in the place of determining whether God's activities are right or wrong. Because you put yourself in a place. I mean, let's just, let's really back up and, and ask ourselves for a moment. Do I really believe about myself that when I look at the activity of God and what he would choose to do or not choose to do, and I say, mm, I, I want to say God didn't do that because I don't like what that represents. If God is that way, I don't like who that is. Do I really believe? What I'm saying at that moment is I have more knowledge, more understanding, more insight than God himself to determine. I sit over and above him in determining whether his activities are right or wrong. And it really does, friends, boil down to whether we believe in a doctrine of revelation where God has revealed something to us about himself or whether we believe we can make God in our own image. That is the brass tacks of that question. Now, I'm not saying that relieves the emotional tension that we feel of sometimes going, wow, God, I don't understand how what you did was just. I'm not suggesting you and I will always understand that God, why God's activity is just. I am suggesting that you and I need to begin from the place of believing that if God has done it, then God is just to have done it. Understand this, friends. Throughout the history of the world, God has never done anything to anyone that was unjust, ever. All God's ways are right. All God's ways are good. Now, I wanna, I wanna help you with a couple of things. I mean, listen to Genesis chapter 18. This is Abram talking to God, and he's saying, don't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if you find even 10 Righteous people, please. Like, you, do you remember this story if you're familiar with the Old Testament, right? He starts at like 50 and then he works. If you find 50, don't do it. If you find this many, I mean, he's kind of keeps having this dialogue with God and God in his mercy says, okay, if I find even 10, I won't destroy. But here's, here are the words then. Abram speaks back to God. He says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now, there, when Abram's asking that, it's an assumed yes, right? That he's affirming that this is who God is, not asking, are you this way or are you not that way? Job chapter eight, verse three, remember, Job has lost his family and hear these words in the book of Job. Does God pervert justice or does the almighty pervert the right? And the presumed answer there is not yes, but No. Right, So we have to begin from the place of believing that God is the only righteous judge. He has a right to judge and he never wrongs anyone in doing so, whether I understand how it's just or not. Now, listen, I wanna say two more things and then I wanna quickly move on. I want you to remember, church, that you cannot interact with God. And let me say to those of you who don't believe, this, maybe this is helpful to you to understand. We believe that God exists as a different type of being than you and I. You and I often, in order to be loving, will sacrifice justice, or in order to be just, will sacrifice love, because we do not carry those things out perfectly well together. But you and I need to remember and understand and operate from this understanding that God is not like us in this way. He is perfectly loving and perfectly just in everything that he does, and he never lays down one of his attributes in order to practice another. There is never a moment where God says, I'm gonna have to just slip out of my love a little bit in order to be just, or I'm just gonna have to stop being just, just a touch in order to be loving. 
No, friends, you cannot let that sink into your thinking about God. You have to stretch your minds because he is different than we are. He never stops being all that he is. And he is never less than perfect in every one of those attributes. Always just, always loving. We may not understand or comprehend, but he is. Now, let me remind us that a biblical worldview includes the truth that we have inherited a sinful nature. We are not just ones who commit sin because of that nature. We are born into the guilt of that sin. Adam's guilt is our guilt, Romans 5 tells us. And if that is true, and we believe that it is, then we recognize that every single one of us deserves death and separation for eternity from God. That is what we are, that is what we are owed. And the fact that you and I breathe in and breathe out, the fact that our neighbors breathe in and breathe out is always and only an act of mercy on the part of God. It is his common grace given to believers and unbelievers. So that when we see God bring about judgment, it is only a removal of the mercy that he's been allowing us to operate in. It is not less than we deserve. It's what we've deserved all along. And yet he has withheld. And when he at certain moments and in certain places and in certain ways chooses to bring that judgment, he has not wronged the person upon whom that judgment falls. He has only given them what we all deserve. Now, that is a very different way of thinking for a Christian than the way, probably, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then you think about what humans are owed and deserved. But you need to understand that's the worldview that we as Christians come from. And what it should do, church, is make us deeply humble and deeply forgiving and deeply full of grace because we know how much forgiveness we've been given, how much grace we've been shown. Go back again and again and again to that truth that God is forbearing and patient with you. Now, let me speak to a couple of unhelpful approaches, okay? I, I want to, so not a sidebar as much as a, under this idea of um, God having the right to judge, here's where some of our brothers and sisters, uh, I, I, I want to say well-meaning, but they take some approaches that, that genuinely I don't believe help because I genuinely don't believe they're biblical. And I want to sort of, help you guard against those. Now they all, there's a, there's a, a litany of them, but they probably all boil down into, into kind of a, a general idea that essentially says, when I look at Jesus and who he is and how he reveals God to be, and I look at these violent acts in the Old Testament, I cannot, there's too much tension between the two. Therefore, I have to, in light of who I believe Jesus has shown us God is in love and mercy, I have to then reject these activities of judgment. They can't possibly represent who God really is. And then in order to reject those acts of judgment, we do a couple of things, and it depends on who you're talking to. But essentially, a master either saying, that didn't actually happen, it's just written about, but it's not real, so it's, it's more of a metaphor in the Old Testament than it is an actual historical event. Or... It is a historical event, but it was God allowing Israel to do something that they didn't understand he didn't want them to do. Of course, the difficulty is in the scripture, we see that it's actually commanded. So all of those views amount to a couple of things. They amount to one, dismissing the authority of the Old Testament and making it lesser than the New Testament. 
And so one of the questions we have to ask is, is that how Jesus related to the Old Testament? Did Jesus look at the Old Testament and go, you know what, you're right. Some of that stuff is not real. Some of that stuff didn't happen. Some of that stuff is not what God meant. Now, again, we already recognize there is a category of things when we don't see in the scriptures God commanding it or God saying this is good or right. We recognize there are times where he is just describing something that was wrong, yes? But when we see him commanding it then, in order to get out from underneath that, we have to either say the writers said he commanded it when he never really did. And immediately what that does is it makes me go, or I have to say it didn't actually, that wasn't a historical event. Do you understand that it's very hard to hold the resurrection as a historical event as testified to by the Bible while we say the other events the Bible calls historical or didn't actually happen? How can I pick which ones were historical and which ones were not? I either choose to receive the, the word of God as the revealed word of God in some total, or I put myself over it and say, I'll pick and choose which parts I like, which parts I believe to represent God. Now, let's just go to Jesus and let's ask this question. Did Jesus interact with the Old Testament as if it wasn't holy God's word? And then let's ask, is the Jesus that we think is so different than these Old Testament acts of judgment truly the Jesus the gospels show us? So let's look at Jesus. And again, I'm only gonna give you one because we got so much ground to cover, okay? But look at who, what Jesus says in Luke 16, 17, when he says this. He says, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? When he's, he's gonna say, I'm the fulfillment of the law. I've come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. But the thing I want you to see there is that Jesus treats the Old Testament as the authoritative word of God. When he interacts with it, he says, this is God's word. It is true. And there's no place in the scripture where Jesus finds himself going, yeah, you know that crossing the Red Sea thing? That was a metaphor. That didn't happen. You know, when God did this, he didn't really do that. That's not the way Jesus interacts with the Old Testament. He treats it as authoritative. That's what I need you to see. And the second thing is recognize that Jesus actually spent plenty of time talking about judgment, both temporal and eternal, in his ministry. So sometimes I think where our brothers and sisters may go wrong, well, where I think they do go wrong, is while they rightly want to make Jesus the center of the interpretation of the scriptures, that's right, to say Jesus is the central uh, interpretive key to all of scripture, Old and New Testament, what God is doing to lead to him and what he's doing to point back to him, 100% correct. But the assumption then that Jesus is somehow in opposition to or different than the judging acts of God in the Old Testament is, I just think, a misreading of the gospel. So let's just use one example here. Matthew chapter 11, verses 21 and 24. Now, keep in mind that right after he says what I'm about to read to you, is gonna be those famous verses where Jesus says, come to me, all who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now keep in mind, he's about to say that in about three verses, okay? But look what he says in verses 21 through 24. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you 
had been done in Sodom, so go back to that Old Testament destruction of Sodom, it would have remained until this day. In other words, even the wicked people of Sodom would have seen what Jesus was doing and would have repented if they had seen it. And he's saying, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, you have seen the very revelation of God in me and you have not responded correctly. And then what does he say? But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now, does that sound like judgment? Yes. What Jesus is acknowledging is that God is right to judge and does bring judgment. So there's just a couple of examples there in terms of understanding that, that need that we have to recognize that God is, has a right to judge that no one else has, all right? Now, need number three. Need number three. We need to understand more about the context of a violent act. So now let's get into that Deuteronomy 20 activity. So hopefully you see that when we say we need to affirm that God has the right to judge. And let me just say there, by the way, sometimes when we have these conversations or dialogues, I get the sense that Christians feel like they need to make excuses for God. Can I just be very clear? I need not make any excuse for God. I've already said it, but I'll say it again. I'm not trying to make you feel placated or better about something God does. It's not my job. And I would never wanna do that because all that God does is right. What I want you to do is treasure God as he has revealed to you in his word and everything that is, and not to feel shy or um, like you have to make excuses for him. Sometimes that's the vibe that I get in these conversations of apologetics. It's like, well, we better figure out how to make some excuses for God as to why he did what he did. I don't want to make any excuses for God. He doesn't need them. He is perfectly righteous. But what I want to help you do is understand his ways, okay? Does that make sense? So then we need to recognize if, if point two there, needing to recognize that he has a right to judge is meant to speak to that question of like, well, what about a Genesis six and the Noah and God destroying the earth? Like it's his right to do that. And I know that doesn't necessarily make you go, oh, I feel warm and fuzzy about that. It's not my aim. Now let's start answering some of those other questions. Like, and let's really get down to brass tacks at the end when we ask the question, how is it that I can definitively say that if someone were to say today, if, you, if someone were to walk in here and say, you know, God has called me and given me a command to go harm someone who's not a believer in order to spread his glory into the earth, how can we definitively say in light of what we see in scripture, absolutely not. That is false and it is not of the Lord. Because we'd all agree that's evil and wicked, right? But how can we do that in light of what we're about to read? And I wanna help you think through that, okay? So we need to understand more about the context of a violent act. So go to Deuteronomy chapter 20 and let's look at verses 16 through 18. And like I said, the same command is given in Deuteronomy chapter seven, the first five verses of that chapter. But here are these verses. It says, but in the cities of these peoples, this is Israel getting ready to go into the promised land, and this is God's command to them. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them. That word is a Hebrew word called harem, H-E-R-E-M, harem, and it means to ban something, right? Now we'll get into that in a second but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites 
and the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all that their abominable practices, uh, to do all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. All right. So I want to help you understand the context of why God would command that at that moment. Now, I want you to recognize that for some, one of the, one of the ways to try and deal with this is to say, well, when God says harem, this is like William Lane Craig, who's a dear brother and really great apologist, but I actually disagree with him here. He suggests that when God uses that word harem, it just means ban, like get them out of the land. It doesn't actually mean destroy them. But when you see the usage of this word, the vast majority of the time, it doesn't just mean to send someone away. It, it does mean to destroy them, to, to take violent action against them. And I don't think we're dealing honestly with the word there when we try and skirt around it by just saying, well, God is not commanding destruction. He's just commanding removal from the land. It does seem that God is commanding in this moment destruction. Now, so we gotta get a little context here. So Genesis chapter 15 verses 13 through 16, say this. This is God hundreds of years before the moment I just read in Deuteronomy chapter 20. God speaks to Abram, and he's going to make a promise to him to create a people from him. That's the people of Israel. And here, listen to what he says after making that promise. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's Egyptian slavery for the people of Israel. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Here's the key sentence. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So 400 years, even more than 400 years, before God gave the command to go in and destroy the people who were living in the land that God had promised to Israel, he had said to Abram, I'm gonna make a people from you, but the, the sins of the people that I'm gonna punish through Israel, I'm gonna raise up Israel and I'm gonna use them as my weapon of punishment and judgment upon this group of people, they have not, their sins have not come to full completion yet. It is not the time for judgment yet. Now, again, whenever you see God delaying judgment, what is always inferred in that delay is an opportunity for repentance. God delays 400 years before commanding the destruction of these seven groups of people in the promised land. That's a significant amount of patience. Would you agree? He waits 400 years and gives opportunity for repentance, but there is no repentance when you study the background of these nations, one of the things you recognize, and I won't go into the details, but it's gory and horrific. This is a debauched society. They sacrifice children alive on the altar to false gods. They commit gross acts of violence and injustice constantly again and again. And therefore God has sought to bring or determined to bring judgment upon them. And he uses Israel as the vehicle of that judgment. Now, that's one piece of context, that 400 years of waiting. Now, 
when you see God declare that, there's two things going on there. He says the, their wickedness is not yet complete or the sins have not yet been fulfilled. He is both in his sovereignty speaking a recognition that those sins will become complete. He is aware that that will happen because he is aware of past, present, and future at all times. He knows that, and yet also in his sovereignty, we recognize that that 400 years always within Scripture represents a time and an opportunity for repentance to which God responds with mercy. Now, the second thing we need to understand about the context is not just the patience with which God waited to bring that judgment, but often this action gets declared ethnic cleansing or genocide. And let me tell you that that is absolutely not the case. And there's a couple of reasons we know that. Number one is just right before in chapter 20, verses 10 and 11, God actually commands the nation of Israel not to destroy certain other groups of people. He's not saying I only love Israel and I want to destroy all these other ethnic groups because he says specifically that other ethnic group living outside the land, even though they're full of wickedness, do not destroy them. I'm only using you to judge this group of people. So he tells them to pass through and not destroy this, these groups of people. Furthermore, God determines, here's the really fascinating thing is God gives a reason why he wants to use Israel to judge them and to send them out of the land through destruction. That reason is that if the Canaanites continue to live around the people of Israel, it will cause the people of Israel to begin to become like them. They will begin to walk in sin and God wants to protect the purity of his people. That is part of his reason for destruction. Now they do not keep his command. They don't actually follow what he says to do in Deuteronomy chapter 20. And the result is that they begin to become Canaanized. They become like the Canaanites. And as a result then, who does God judge next? Them. And who does he use to judge them? Pagan nations, Babylon and Assyria. So his judgment, whether it's removal from the land as it is with Israel, or whether it's destruction as it is with the Ammonites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, his judgment falls on all who practice wickedness. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy chapter nine. Before he sends them in to judge, this is what he says to Israel. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving them out from before you that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So Israel's not righteous, but they are at this moment in history, God's tool for judgment. Now, the last thing to, to point out about context here and understanding this particular activity is that repentance does lead to salvation. There's a question that comes up because there's one family, one Canaanite family, that is not destroyed. Actually, I said they didn't keep the command, but in the first uh, movement into the promised land, when they take over Jericho, there's a very famous person in the scriptures. Her name is Rahab. She becomes the great, I don't know how many greats, grandmother of Jesus himself. The book of James and the book of Hebrews both personify her as a person of faith. And so the question becomes, well, did they disobey by not destroying Rahab and her family? But the answer is no, they obeyed in the scriptures. The New Testament affirms that they didn't destroy her under the harem, under the ban. And the reason is because she demonstrated what? Faith. That the God of Israel was the true God. 
and she hid the spies in the land. And in so doing, she saved her entire family and became the epitome of faith. This Canaanite woman, this woman who'd been raised in this debauched society, shows faith in the one true God and is rescued as a result and rescues how beautifully her whole family from destruction because of it. So friends, here's what I I want you to see in this idea of the context, right? God does not give Israel a license to kill indiscriminately. He wants to use them at this one moment in history as his his people who at this moment have a national identity. He wants to use them to exercise judgment on a specific group of people at a specific time. And he never invites them to do that at another point or in other ways. He limits them very much within a certain scope in order to bring a judgment that he has determined is right and good to bring at that moment. Now, does that make sense? So that's the context of the Canaanite conquest. And I want you to understand that because again, for some folks, they look at that and they say, God is just all about violent activity and they fail to recognize one, the patience of God, two, the righteousness of God in judging a people who were incredibly wicked, and three, that it was a specific moment in time instruction, not one that was sort of supposed to be the normal operating mode of the nation of Israel. All right, then the last thing we need, last point today, is that we need to see the bigger picture of God's plan. We need to see the bigger picture of God's plan. So here's what I mean by that. We just looked at this Deuteronomy 20 moment where God is setting up Israel in the land, but I don't want you to just see the context of why God is inviting judgment on the people of Canaan and using Israel to do that in that point in time interaction. I want you to see even bigger than that because here's what God is doing. God is at work to redeem not just one nation, but people from every nation through Jesus and his cross. So the story of God's redemptive history is that he makes a promise to a man named Abraham to make a nation from him. And that nation is Israel. The people of God in the Old Testament are the nation of Israel. It is a physical nation that represents the people of God. He gives them a law. He continues to protect them. He gives them a land. He judges them when they rebel against him, but he interacts with them as his people. The reason he chose Israel was not because of their righteousness or their goodness, but because he wanted to send the savior of the world through a people who he called his own. And then once he sent that savior into the world, all those, whether they be Jew or Gentile, whether they be Canaanite or Israelite, who would call upon the name of God through the sacrifice of Jesus become his people. And so now... Under the new covenant, the people of God is no longer a national people. There is no national identity to the people of God. There is now a spiritual people that are his people, a people purchased by the blood of Jesus and through his cross. And therefore, as a result, what we understand is that while he used Israel to do certain acts of judgment under the old covenant as a way of for them coming to the land, protecting their purity and their holiness to keep his redemptive plan on track, right? To then keep them alive and a remnant ultimately alive when he sends them into exile in Babylon. Keep a remnant alive so that the savior of the world could come so that ultimately he would save people from every nation. And here's the thing that you and I need to see. All of that is leading to a cross, which is the most violent act in human history, because it's committed against the only righteous person who's ever lived. And that's how he saved us. And that's how he saved people from every nation, 
through bringing the violence that you and I deserve from him in judgment upon us, but placing it upon his son. And as we see, yes, there was a temporal act of judgment against a group of people under the old covenant, but that was all in order to keep his plan moving forward to bring about the opportunity for salvation for people from every nation, not one nation, every nation. And instead of bringing judgment upon all of us who are rightly deserving of it, he has put that judgment upon Jesus so that all who believe in him could have life. So we do not call God unjust because he has shown such mercy to save us through bringing the judgment that we deserve upon him. Now, how do we apply that today? So let me just get right to the final kind of like, let's, let's close up with answering very directly some of those questions. Number one, we should marvel at the mercy of God towards us. We should marvel that you and I are breathing in and out right now is the mercy of God. Why is it that we can know then that if someone were to stand up here and say, hey, we should do what Israel did to the Canaanites, that's what we should do. That still applies today. How is it that we can know that that is not of the Lord? And the answer is very simple that God used Israel, a national people with a national identity in the old covenant, they were his people. He used them to bring judgment at one moment, at one point of time against a group of people whom he determined it was right to judge at that moment. But that was never intended to be a pattern offered to God's people. And now the church under the new covenant does not serve as God's instrument of judgment against anyone. Now, the call to God's people under the new covenant is not to spread our faith through destruction of others, but to be willing to die ourselves to spread our faith, to love our enemy and to pray for those who persecute us, to turn the other cheek when we are struck. That is the call of the people of God now. And it's why anyone from any religion who says God has commanded me to commit an act of violence against someone else to spread my faith or take more territory to my faith is doing something that displeases God and is evil and wicked. You follow me? We never have a command to be God's instrument of judgment in the world today because of God's redemptive plan and where we sit within that plan. We are not Israel. We are not a national people. We are now the people of God under the new covenant who spread our faith and bring glory to God through suffering violence, not committing violence. Now, the second question then is, okay, how do we then think about it within, we said violence among the people of God, because that answers the question of like, well, why wouldn't we go out and attack someone who's not a believer? What about within ourselves? What if I committed egregious sin? Should you put me to death? Why is it that we would suggest that it is inappropriate for God's people to commit acts of violence within house here, among ourselves, even for very egregious sin? And there's two reasons. Number one is my sin has been paid for by Jesus. The penalty for that sin has been taken. It's on him. Now, that does not mean that there is not right discipline within the church, but that discipline exists to restore, not to destroy. So all disciplinary action taken among the people of God is always restorative. Even when it's hard, it's restorative, not destructive. 
That is a key difference between old covenant, new covenant now as we think about how we discipline. But the second reason goes back to that us not having a national identity. We are an international people with a spiritual identity, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we live within nations. And God has determined at this moment in history that he does not call the church to have the right to bear the sword. It is not our place to determine when life should be given and taken. He has given that to governments and to governmental authorities. That's what Romans 13 tells us. And so were you to say, Trent's committed a sin, we're going to kill him, what would our government do? Rightly prosecute you for doing that because government is the one with the right to bear the sword. And then, like I said, we're not gonna address capital punishment and all those kinds of things. What's the right expression of government bearing the sword? Christians can disagree about what they think is the best version of a government's activity within the world about how they bear the sword. The point I want you to see is the church does not bear the sword and is not called to bear it. So when we bring about discipline, it's never destructive in death. It is always restorative in that nature. The last thing I'm gonna point you back to is what I've tried to make the encapsulating statement of this whole time is to say that our job, that the right application for us is to treasure God for all that he is. To treasure God for all that he is. The things you understand and love and the things that are harder to comprehend. All of it, if it is revealed to us in the scriptures, is God's gift to us. God is right in all his ways and righteous in all his actions and does justice always at all times and never fails to execute it perfectly. And so we remember that and we worship him accordingly. So it's appropriate, ushers, if you wanna come, servers, if you wanna come, it's appropriate that we come to the table now to reflect upon, as I said, the greatest act of violence ever committed in human history, which resulted in salvation for all who come to Jesus by faith. And so church family, when we come to the table of the Lord, I wanna remind us of a couple of things. One, we are invited to reflect upon our lives and to examine ourselves, to invite God's spirit to examine us and to not partake of his table lightly. And what that means is that we don't partake of these elements, which we recognize represent the sacrifice of Christ to us. We don't hold them and take them and then say, I intend to continue right forward in my sin in all the same ways that I was sinning before. I, this means nothing to me. We are called to examine and so. It's part of our time now that we do that. Having reflected upon God's word and sung his praises, we come now to the table to reflect upon that. We also rightly want to recognize for our, our friends, and we call you friends, who are not followers of Jesus. We're just gonna invite you to let these elements pass. Use this time to reflect upon the invitation of Jesus to you to make his body and his blood, his sacrifice on your behalf, just trusting in that, to take away your sin, to grant you reconciliation to the Father, and eternal life with him. It would be our joy for you to know that and to trust it and to come to faith in him. But until that day comes, we're gonna invite you to let these elements pass because we would not want you to proclaim in the partaking of them that you believe in something which you have not come to believe. So we'll invite you into that faith. We invite you to consider it. And we are glad that you are here and wrestling through these things with us. Keep coming. You always got a spot here. We're glad. So church family, now as the servers come, I'll invite you to receive the elements and we'll take them together in just a moment. Servers, if you'll come.